Thinking Sideways is not brought to you by elves who steal socks to make dresses. Instead, it's supported by the generous contributions of people like you, our listeners, on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash thinking sideways to learn more. Thinking Sideways. I don't understand. Does not compute. You never know. Stories of things we simply don't know the answer to. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Thinking Sideways. I am Steve, of course, as always, joined by... Devin! And Joe! And this week we're going to talk uh, about a mystery. Of course. Because by the time this episode comes out, it, there will be some presidential stuff going on, so I figured we'd talk about a president. Who yeah. happens to be in a different country? An ex-president. An, well, yeah, a dead president. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister, President. Uh, you know, he's always referred to as President. Okay. Mm. Uh, most of the time, so I'm going to call him a President. Okay, so not the guy who swam away from the ocean. Oh, no, Harold, Harold away Holt. from the ocean. Yep. Yeah, so he was. Sw- he was he trying was to get away from that ocean. Yeah, he was. Yeah. It caught up. Mm-hmm. No, this week we're going to talk about the death of Mozambican President Samora Michelle who died along with 33 other people when the presidential plane, which was a Tupolev Tu-134A3, crashed into a South African hillside on October 19th, 1986. Um, And it's believed by many people to have been an assassination, which was executed by intentionally crashing the plane. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) Uh, Before we get into the story, I do want to say that this is a listener suggestion. This is an Ash story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we haven't yeah. done one of Ash's stories in a long time. We haven't, oh, and we, we sure haven't, haven't even, like, gotten through half of his suggestions. I, I know. I didn't even intend, I didn't realize this was an Ash suggestion until I got mm, to it. Okay, mm. there you go. And by the way, Ash, if you're still out there listening, send us another suggestion. Yeah, because, I mean, we're, we're, like, through the first 30. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we love it, Ash. Um, okay, so before we get into the story of the crash, we do need to cover some background information on both Michelle as well as some other people and the area because there was a bunch of turmoil in the region and that mm. plays in a plays into the story yeah so first let's start with the country of Mozambique okay mm, which yeah. is where uh some more Michelle was the president of Bob Dylan wrote a song about it did he yeah Really? came out in the 70s. I think it was right after the, the decolonization and it was taken over by Marxists. And oh, so he, okay. Because yeah. for a second, I was thinking you were talking about there was a time where uh, Bob Marley had gone to the same region, uh-huh. but that was for another country, which suddenly I don't have the name of, but I know is further along in my script, and I'll call it out when we get there. Oh, okay, cool. Um, okay. If your uh, your geography isn't that great with... With South Africa. And not the country, the area. The, 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 the southern, southern part Africa. of Africa. Yes. Because that, I just had a moment where I was like, uh, you keep saying Zimbo- or, uh, that Mozambique. Mozambique is a country, but then you're saying South Africa. Now I'm confused. So the southern region of Africa. Not South mm-hmm. Africa. Correct. Okay. If you are familiar with or not familiar with it, you will look at a map. And on the very bottom of the tip, you will see the country of South Africa. And to the right of it on the coast is Mozambique, just directly to the, the north eastern side and then there's a a small country sandwich in between south africa and mozambique which is called swaziland so that's where it is and it's a mm-hmm. swaziland's an itsy bitsy teeny tiny it's, country yeah it's kind of sandwiched 
It's completely surrounded. It it's is. Surrounded it's totally on, landlocked, yeah. but it's... Yeah. By those two countries. But it's, it's yeah. surrounded on three sides by South Africa, yeah. basically. And, and one side and one by Mozambique. One tiny little yeah. side. Yeah. Yeah. For about 400 years, Mozambique was a Portuguese colony. And, okay, so I got to stop for a second. I, didn't re- I knew Portugal had colonies. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it still had colonies this far into the modern era for some reason. Yeah. I mean, it's just a failing on my part for, from a historical perspective, apparently. But I was like, it's a Portuguese colony? I thought the Portuguese lost all their colonies like 200 years ago. We- no, not everything. I- I mean, most places that had colonies still have colonies. Is that not accurate? My my problem is, is that I'm used to the British who, you know, returned all of their colonies primarily or most of them. They they don't have but like two colonies anymore, it feels like. And I know that's not the right number. Please don't send me an email. Mm. I know two isn't the correct number. But there was a lot of turmoil in the last 40 or 50 years. Mm. And they have, uh, those countries have all returned to their own governance. Yeah, it's like... some fashion. Most, yeah, most of the decolonization took place in the 60s, you know, but there are a few held on to the 70s, mm-hmm. yeah. But. So anyway, this was a Portuguese colony, and as Joe was just talking about, in the 60s, there was a lot of revolt against the Portuguese government. A guerrilla liberation group became very active starting around 1964, and they were openly fighting the Portuguese government. The name of this group is the Front for the Liberation of Mozambique, which is kind of a mouthful. So thankfully, everybody uses the acronym FRELIMO, uh, which is much easier to say. I like it better. I do, too. FRELIMO fought against Portugal and made progress uh, towards their goal of taking back the country slowly but surely. Uh, One thing that really helped them is that they weren't the only colony uh, struggling to do this. And there was actually uh, liberation movements in Angola, Portuguese Guinea, and as, as well as Mozambique. And in 1974, after fighting wars on multiple fronts, there was a coup in Portugal which brought down the existing government and it was replaced by one that was totally willing to grant independence to the colonies. So the short version is Mozambique granted its independence in 1975, and Frelimo, being the main force, took power. They became the governance at that time, and they quite quickly kicked out the 250,000 Portuguese citizens who were living in country. Mm. Uh, so they were literally taking everything back. That was a move a lot of African countries came to regret, though. <laughs> uh, there was there was positives yeah. and there was negatives. They yeah. there they did leave a uh, a pretty significant gap in terms of commerce and uh, there were some other areas that that really struggled because of it i mean in the Mm. end they most of them have overcome that Mm. Uh, it took them time as it always does well yeah i mean they when you're a colony right all of your infrastructure is run by By the the remote power colonizational power is that a word colonial Colonial. (laughs) that's much easier to say yeah um so i mean you know as soon as they say ah you know what Mm, you're cut off it's like the people who know how to run the machinery yeah Yeah. well it's you know it's just like you know being like a college kid and getting cut off from your parents all of a sudden you're you have no idea what you're doing and you have to kind of fend for yourself. And that's a great analogy. It's really hard. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. But luckily most of these places have really, at least kind of, They've grown out. up. To yeah. use your college kid analogy, yeah. they've grown up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now, I, gotta, I do have to say, the, of all the, all the countries out there that were former colonies, the ones that are consistently doing the best are the ones that were colonized by the British. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I mean, they really are. That's accurate, actually. Yeah, yeah. it is. It yeah. is. If you look at like uh, you know Belize to India to Canada, America to where is it? That other place. That other place. Yeah, that other place. Yeah, even in Africa, the African countries that were colonized by the Brits, they're doing great. Yeah. I wonder if there was a better exit strategy that happened there. Ah, you know what? I I don't know, and I think that's a long road for us to run down. Yeah, no, no. Let's let's not go there. Let's let's keep focused on Mozambique here because we're we're still talking about them. Yeah, Botswana was the country I was trying to think of. Got it. Okay. So when Frelimo came into power as the ruling government, they made the entire state a marxist leninist is yeah. that how you say that leninist leninist thank you Leninist-ist. i was yeah. adding an extra l in there a leninist marxist leninist political organization that's a real formula for success and so Listen. what that meant is that they set up a socialist state mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For its part, the Soviet Union's obviously very happy about this. They have a new friend in town, but that didn't really uh, didn't really make everybody else in the area happy. But we'll get into that in a second. Um, Michelle, Samora Michelle, he was involved with Frelimo from its beginnings. Yeah. He very quickly rose to power through the organization, such so that in 1970, he was elected the leader of the organization. Okay. So in 75, when the Portuguese left and Frelimo stepped into the government uh, shoes, yeah. He was kind of the natural, the yeah. natural person to take over, sure. and, and he didn't. It, it wasn't. Uh, there's a whole bunch of backstory here. He wasn't immediately just the number one guy, but we're just kind of shortening this to keep it simple. Now, the important thing you need to know is he was pres. He was president, and the other important thing to know is that almost immediately there was uh, detractors who were not happy with him or for Limo, and a counter group or counter movement began, and that. That was the Mozambican National Resistance, which in the beginning went by the acronym of just MNR, but later on they changed their name, and and this name is sort of recent, but we'll use it just because Mm -hmm. you're going to see it in most of the reading, is Renamo, and they opposed the communist-based government, and they actually began a civil war in 1976. Awesome. Yeah, it didn't do. Uh, so you can see, uh, country gets its its independence in 75 and then immediately goes to war with itself in the year later. Like, that's not a good thing. Listen, mm. it's just the truncated version. They're just getting all of the, the crap out of the way. <laughs> They're doing it fast. Yeah. And then, you know, they get that out of their system and then they have a great path to become a really productive, amazing country. There you go. Mm. That, that must have been the plan. I'm not sure. I didn't look up any stats on how productive and amazing they are. But, uh... Uh, they actually there's been a lot of political changes in that country over mm. the last 40 years yeah but it's only been 40 years right and i mean they they've only doing... run their country for 40 years yeah where were and... we 40 years out like not good <laughs> not, not so no. hot um so let's keep going on we're gonna talk a little bit more about the area now okay. so we've got michelle he's now in power we talked about the neighbors which were south africa and rhodesia which is modern day zimbabwe by the way rhodesia was the one that i was thinking of that marley went to the, oh, he was. Okay. He went there and did a big concert during their whole rise. We also to talked about Rhodesia when we talked about the Lake City Quiet Pills. Did we? Yeah. Okay. The Rhodesian Army. You're right. Yeah. We did. Yeah. Ah, it's all coming together. Uh-oh. Uh oh. But guys, any... I think we have to go to Rhodesia. No, I think so. <laughs> I think that's what this is telling us. Let's We're going to go to this country that doesn't exist anymore because it's been renamed. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Okay, so. 
South Africa and Rhodesia, who are both under white control, do not like this country that is now a socialist state. Yeah. They, they, you know, they're not f- fans of communism, and they uh, they begin to funnel support and money and weapons and shelter to the folks that are involved in Renamo. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's not very, uh, very cool to Michelle. He, he doesn't like that. He actually has a lot of very stern words to say to both governments for that. Mm-hmm. But then again, for his well, part, were, he, was, he was, he was interfering in their politics too. Yeah. Cause he was, he was at the same time doing the same thing for the ANC, which is the African national council, which Congress. eventually would take over it's when African the national Congress, what's that? African National Congress. Congress. What did I call it? Council. Council. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're over. Yeah. But they would, uh, you know, they would be the ones who would take over when the apartheid government in South Africa would eventually crumble several years later. Mm. <laughs> More than several. It took a long. It, it took a lot longer. It was a long years, time. Yeah. Uh, I meant several years after the death of Michelle. I oh, apologize. Okay. I'm uh, I'm mixing my timeline sure, there. Sure. That's my own yeah. fault. It's like it was in like 90s, I think. Yeah, it was 94. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was 94. So. Yeah, they they did. They struggled against that for a long time. Okay, but let's jump ahead in time. We're going to jump ahead. We've got a little bit of the backstory of the region. Let's jump to 1986. There was a meeting of the heads of state of several different African nations being held on the 19th of October, 1986, in Mbala, Zambia. And the goal was to using air quotes here, encourage the dictator of Zaire to stop supporting the insurgent groups that were fighting in Angola at the time. As I understand it from the reading, Michelle's motivation to go there was also to help, quote-unquote, encourage the other leaders there to stop supporting Renamo. Well, yeah, Uh I mean, that makes sense, right? You go to a place and you say, hey, listen, yeah, I'll support you in Mm -hmm. this if you support me in that. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's a give and take. That's the way this works. Yeah. That's what diplomacy is, I think. It may be. Uh, diplomacy is basically threats. <laughs> well, okay. That's why you, how you know you're an American. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so Michelle, along with a bunch of his staffers and journalists, they flew to this meeting on the presidential plane, which, as I'd said in the beginning, was a Tupolev TU-134A-3, which is a Soviet design and manufacturer. You manufactured. don't say. I do. With a name like that? You do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was yeah, a first, Soviet design and manufactured twin-engine jetliner. Yeah, the first thing I did when I when I heard it, started going into the story is I looked at the uh, the crash history of the Tupolev, mm-hmm. and actually, yep. it's it's not as bad as I thought it would be. But... No, but it, it's not the safest plane in the world. It turns out to be, Probably but it's not, not the worst either. This type of plane, though, it, it had been around for at that time. 20 years, and this particular plane had been in service with the government for six years. So it's a modern plane with the modern well, navigational equipment of the, of the time. It had a telegraph. Uh, <laughs> it did not, yeah. uh, but it did have a fax machine. Uh, but something to note, uh, this is, I always found this a little strange, is that the crew were actually Russian. Mm-hmm. They were employed by the USSR, and they operated the plane for the Mozambican government, which which I, I just, I don't know. Something about that seems a little odd to me. Well, they probably wanted the, the, the Russians to be changing the, the tapes and the bugging devices. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I guess it kind of, home. yeah, I mean, a little bit makes sense to me. 
I can see it as a way to here we'll give you this plane, you know, for a discount, and then we'll give you a crew, and you'll just pay us for the crew. I mean, you're leasing out the crew at that point. Yeah, I get it, but it always just probably, seemed a little odd to yeah, me. Yeah, I guess you least, don't even have to be leasing the crew, right? I mean, if the they could just pay them directly too, or if the USSR is they were being they were Soviet enough. employees. Yeah, I mean, if the Soviet Union is really just trying to play that role of like Big Brother, like yes, we will take you to encourage them to continue the Soviet way or a socialist way. So this is one of those things they do is kind of a, a, a small gesture of support yeah. is what you're getting uh-huh. at. And then okay. also, you know, get tons of intel and true. Uh-huh. all that stuff. Because they're bugging the plane, as Joe yeah. said. I'm sure okay. they were. Um, so, <laughs> well, let's, uh, so enough about the crew. We're going to go to, we're going back to the date of the 19th of October of that, 86. The meeting ended and because Michelle had as the reading always says, he had an important meeting the next day, which it turned out was actually his wife's birthday, though a lot of people say that he also had some other, quote-unquote, really important meetings that he had to attend. Let's be honest, you're a married man. Yeah, it's his wife's birthday. Yeah. It's a, that's, that's a important. very important yes. meeting to be there for. <laughs> so, well, she was with him, so they had they had gone to Mbala, and and she had gone with him, and so the rather than they'd been offered to stay overnight. Yeah, she probably didn't really want to. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't want to. So he said, "No, we're going to go home today." Probably and, would have been a good idea to be flying during the day, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, less likely to crash, eh? Yeah. So uh, what happens here is uh, they decide that they're going to go ahead. They're going to fly home to Maputo City, which is in the capital of Mozambique. And the plane leaves at 640 at night, and it takes kind of this serpentine path, but it flies basically southeast towards Maputo. And the weather is clear, and the flight's estimated to take about three hours, just just under, actually. Okay. From here, we know what happened because of the fact that we what were recovered were the cockpit voice recorders, the CVR, and the flight data recorder, or... The black box, as everybody likes to call them. And all those bugs that the Russians had placed. And none of the mm. bugs that the Russians had <laughs> placed. Um, so we've got, we've got all that data. At 9 o'clock that night, the, uh, so this is, they've obviously left and they're flying home. Mm-hmm. At 9 o'clock that night, the crew contacted Maputo Air Traffic Control to let them know that they're about 40 minutes out. Mm-hmm. And then 16 minutes later... And so, was this a moonless night, by the way? It was not, but it was a low... It was a small moon, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And the moon had not yet risen. Ah, the moon yeah. wouldn't rise until shortly after the, the crash. Like, ah. literally 10 minutes after the crash, yeah. what moon there was would have come up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that would have maybe helped things here. Like I said, they, they contact the, the air traffic control. They say they're about 40 minutes out. 16 minutes later, they contact them again uh, and let them know that they're ready to begin their descent. That's about right. Yeah. 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 30 minute descent. Yeah, 25 Typical. minutes, something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's at this point that I should explain something about how the plane was navigating to Maputo. And that is that they were using a VHS omnidirectional radio range finder, which we are from here on going to call a VOR because that's much easier. Is that actually a range finder or is that just a beacon? It's a beacon, yeah. uh, but that's that's part of the name. In a nutshell, what the VOR is, is it's a, a signal that's broadcast from a location that allows the pilot to determine their relation to that beacon. Yeah, they head to the light. Yeah, yeah um, and, and it's because there's a, a phase-matched pa- 
pair of signals that are being sent and through that match or mismatch, they can tell how far they are off in a 360 degree circle. Is it like sonar? No. Um, no, not exactly. Here's how it works. Thank uh, you, because I'm yeah. No, and, and believe me, <laughs> I I got a hold of our experts. Thank you to all of our experts for their help with this. I really hope this makes sense. Here's what happens: is there is a signal, a, I believe it's a pulsing signal that okay. is constantly being sent out, like a ping, like a ping. Okay. At the same Boop. time, and that's being sent out in all directions Boop. at the same time. At the same time, there is a second signal being sent out. And in the old days, it used to be from a antenna that was actually a physically rotating antenna. And it would rotate 20 to 30 times a minute. But it is then also, in a directional fashion, shooting out that signal so that they both start in line at true north. And so if it then rotates 90 degrees to the east, it's a quarter out of sync. Due south, it's now a, it's now half out of sync and then three quarters. And then they sync back up because the new rotation starts. I hope that makes sense. Basically, it's a spiral on top of another circle mm. is how it works. It allows them to figure out where they are in relation to it. It yeah. probably makes sense enough for it to matter. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is uh, these are at the airports that they're headed for, and other airports have them also, but on different radio frequencies. Correct. They yeah. are not set on the same frequency. No, that would be confusing. Well, huh? and, the, and the thing is, is that they also send out, back in the day, they would send out a Morse code signal at the same time that would say, essentially, this is Maputo Airport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm over and over and over and over so that you didn't tune into it and start to fly to it and then realize you were going to the wrong airport, you could pick that code up right away. But would you use other airport signals to navigate off of? Like knowing, hey, we're two hours into the flight. We should be passing this city. I under, If I understand it correctly, yes. Okay. It is a method of navigation, not only to a specific destination, but to know where you are in relation to other places okay. as yeah. you pass through their signal path. Yeah, cool. you could actually just use a compass and autopilot, I think, for most of it, and then just do corrections off when you pass an airport, maybe. Right. Yeah. Adjust your right. Course, exactly. But I just wanted to make sure that that would be a thing that they would be switching between frequencies during the flight. They could be, yes. Um, so the flight crew is using the Maputo VOR. Um, it, that's how they're guiding into the airport because that's where they're going. Or at least, they, I don't know if they actually picked it up yet. But they, they, had, they, they had. The they had. They were only they, half hour they out. They were half they hour out. Joe, the VORs have a range of up to 200 miles. Yeah. And they were 40 minutes out, which made them about 60 miles or so away from the airport. So they were definitely in its range. Mm. And they were definitely going to be picking it up. They were flying that slow? Well, they Apparently. were coming in for a long, They were about to descend. You mm. don't start to descend two, 200 miles out, do you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the don't point know. is, they were they were within its 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 envelope. They mm. had definitely been picking it up, and they were they had tuned into it because that's where they were going to head to. They go ahead and, like I said, they tell air traffic control that they're going to start their descent. Air traffic control says, "Listen, go ahead and tell us when you're uh, at when your altitude reaches three thousand feet, or if you see our runway lights, contact us then, and, <laughs> and then we'll talk." Yeah, I know. It's really <laughs> funny. And it's a, we're talking clear night? Yes, clear night. Not a cloudy night, Great. anything like that. Okay. Uh, the mystery really gets going at about 9, 10 at night because that's when the plane, for a reason that nobody knows, made a 37-degree turn 
to the right. So it banked and turned west because it was headed south at that point. So now it's heading not southeast, but southwest, okay. which oh, nobody knows why that happened. On the cockpit voice recorder, you can hear the captain remarking about it, to which the navigator says, VOR indicates that way. Okay, and that's so... It, that's what he says. So, it, and it's significant, right, that it's a Soviet crew at this point? It is. So, presumably, it's not a crew that's used to making this run? This seems like a sort of run that might That would be been... incorrect. This crew so had been making this run. They had been flying in and out of this airport Quite a few times. It wasn't like it was their first time. Okay. That's weird. Yeah. It's it's It strange. seems like you would kind of be you, used to it. Yeah. Now, granted, today we're a little spoiled because everybody uses GPS and it's so much more precise. But, you know, they were like, oh, the, the instrument says go that way, go that way. And That's so... That's a pretty big bank to make, though. It uh, is. It's a pretty big course correct. Yeah. yeah. And essentially, they would have had to believe they were like, you know, way, way far off really course to far. the east. Yeah, they would have had to be heading out into the ocean yeah. by you know, I mean, accident. Yeah. Well, and they would have. I mean, I'm sure that they would have been used to seeing certain landmarks and that and is, geographic stuff, right? That is and so very true, right? So even if the navigator is like, "Well, it says to go that way," you would think the pilot would be like, "But those are the mountains that should be there." Like, what? Are I you don't think doing? there was enough light. It was dark, right? Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. dark. See, that's the thing. As you, as you guys yeah, have said, there was no true. moon yet. And when they were flying, there was navigational aids. They weren't seeing things that they were expecting to be right. seeing, like light, certain lights uh-huh. or certain um, radio signals should have been coming in. They should have been picking up certain things, and they weren't. And were they com- they were commenting on that? They were, okay. and they, they believed that the power was out in the city. So hmm. they figured that, oh, the electricity must be out. I think it's but they the, didn't the captain says something like, you know, uh, it's it's running dark, chaps, or something like that. It seems a little, I guess it seems a little odd to me that they would have made radio contact with the tower and not been like, oh, hey, by the way. So they do. Because okay. when they hit the 3,000 feet mark, they, they get a hold of the air traffic control and they say, we're at 3,000 feet. And uh, by the way, we can't see the runway lights. Can you check the runway lights? Can you go flip that switch? Huh? Yeah, go yeah. double check that they're on. Look out the window, buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually ask that twice. So they ask them to check that twice. Um, they're in their descent. They think that they're, you know, within a thousand feet of the ground at this point and they're ready to land. So they've dropped their landing gear or lowered the landing gear, I should say. They weren't within a thousand feet of the ground at that time, were they? Well, they thought they were, you know, I, if I remember. I think that the tower told them to descend to 3,000 feet and stay at 3,000. Right? And they had, then yeah. the problem was they had continued to descend presuming that they were on target mm-hmm. and that in another thousand feet or so they'd be on the ground. The problem is, of course, they, they didn't stop at 3,000 feet, even though nobody confirmed that, yeah, they, they kept saying, I don't know what's going on here. Um, so they are, they're about 20 miles or 12 miles out or 20 kilometers out at this point. And then the uh, the ground proximity warnings start going off, which is the the warning that says, "Hey, the ground is right under you. Pull but up." But how how far right under you? A couple hundred feet. Okay, so like right right under you, because I think the the ground warning they like went, you're gonna hit that house 
Yeah, they okay. went off and they actually descended another 200 feet, I think it was. They kept going down. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that nobody can really pin as to why they did that. They kept going down even though the, the alarm's going off. I mean, the crew is swearing. They can't figure out what's going on. They're not happy. I believe they, th- I believe they thought the ground proximity alarm was just defective. And, and... They, they decided that, apparently. And they yeah. kept talking to the air traffic control for another 22 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if if your ground proximity thing is going off, right, you would assume that either you're seeing lights from the ground because you're pretty dang close to the ground or your sensor's faulty and you're where you think you are. And you believe that you're in the spot that you have been in a right. hundred times so far. So this part right. is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The problem was, is that it turned out the ground proximity warning uh, was right. Was not wrong. Yeah. It yeah. was yeah. not wrong. As I said, they had the wheels down. The plane continued to descend. So, it, you know, it goes off. 22 seconds later, the plane crashes. Yeah, into a hillside. Uh, into a hillside. So... As I understand it, what happened is the wheels and the belly of the craft hit the top of one of the hills in the area that it was in. It bounced off of that hill into the next hill. Didn't go nose first in, but you know went into it, at which point one of the wings hit a tree Ugh. and it starts tumbling. Mm-hmm. There was a total of 44 people on this plane. Nine of them survived. So 34 of them, or thir- 33, 34, 30. in ter- it, including Samora Michelle, it was 34 deaths. Not if there were 44 people and nine survived. 30- oh, oh, no. Okay. <clears throat> so here's the, here's the weird thing about the numbers. Uh-huh. Thank you for pointing that yeah. out. Cause I, I remember reading this and then yeah. it caught me. Math isn't my thing, but no. I know that math. <laughs> One of the people that survived the crash initially died from the injuries two months later. Okay. So that's why it's, oh, okay, that's what's screwing me up. Okay. So there's where I did my math So 10. Nine people survived. Forever. Initially, but then one of them died two months later after that. So technically eight survivors. Okay. Fun fun way to spend the last two months of your life. Yeah. Yeah. No, not not awesome. Yeah. Um, But... One of the one of the people that was on there that we talked about was Samora Michelle's wife, uh, Grasha Michelle, and you might recognize her name because she would later go on uh, many years later, about a decade or more later, she married Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. So she was his wife. It puts her in one of those really unique categories as being the first first lady of two, two. different nations. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is something yeah. that you know, obviously, she's the first. It's never really happened before. She and she was she was Nelson Mandela's second wife. Correct. It was her second marriage and his, his second, second marriage, marriage, which is fine. Yeah. I think it's pretty obvious at this point that the plane was not, in fact, over Maputo Airport. That Maputo maybe was not suffering some kind of weird power loss. And actually, they had banked into the forest. Well, what had happened is because of that 37-degree turn, Mm -hmm. they ended up in the Labombo Mountains, which is on the border of Mozambique, Swaziland, and South Africa. And they just weren't expecting Tri-corners. Yeah, it's a weird little no man's land. It's about 35 miles away from Maputo, which I guess would be 56 kilometers. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, it's a it's a weird hilly area, and the elevation is somewhere around twenty six hundred feet. But it is where they would expect had they been on the correct course and then banked the way they did. That's where they would expect them well, to have been, right? Yeah. Okay. Based I just want to make sure. Based on the time and right. the speed of okay. their travel, Great. that is correct. I just so. want to make sure that we're saying that like that made sense. The turn didn't make sense, but yeah, the, the turn the is one of the big up. mysteries, along with mm-hmm. why they why they did yeah. didn't seems stop like, descending. Seems like with planes, um, the turn is often yeah. <laughs> a, a weird a mystery. wrong turn can spell disaster. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I, I think it's also going to be pretty obvious here that you know because they've been communicating with air traffic control when they suddenly stopped communicating and then didn't say anything again to Maputo that they, they launched a huge search and rescue operation. Right, Cause they knew their president was on that plane. Absolutely mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Um, the, the plane went down just after nine o'clock at night, but because of where it crashed in that weird little no man's land, that little tri corner, as you called it, um, it wasn't until uh, about midnight that the first South African police officers arrived at the crash scene. Right. So you keep saying just after 9 p.m. I think it was like 9.20, 9.30-ish. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just want to be clear. Uh, actually, no. Wait a second. If they made the turn at... Yeah, I guess it would be around 9.20, 9.30 yeah. is when the when their last communications were. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ballpark. Okay. I just... Yeah, because... For me, you know, a yeah, little no, after you're... nine is not nine twenty okay. nine thirty. No, so. and I I will accept that. Okay. That's blunt. Okay. Um, so the plane goes down. Uh, it's not till after midnight that the first South African police officers get there. Two and a half hours. Yeah, several hours, yeah. and that's because you know obviously it's not a highly populated area. It's not as if cell phones are ubiquitous. It's you know you got to do things by driving to places. Yeah, you also to get have to, to a phone. You know, find people. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's there not there, like. There were people living nearby, though. There was a village right nearby. Right, but the village had to then contact, and then somebody had to come out. Right, right, right. And right. they had to be like, wow, there was a big explosion there, and then somebody mm-hmm. had to take them seriously. And So they get there about midnight. About an hour later, the first medics arrive, and it's not until uh, quarter to 4 a.m. that a medical chopper actually arrives to transport the survivors to the hospital. So these poor people have been on the ground literally for about six hours. Mm-hmm. So it, that didn't help the mortality rate probably among not. the crash victims. Yeah. Now, you're probably asking yourself, well, during that time, what were the, the South Africans doing? The, the police, what were they doing? And the answer would be they were collecting paperwork. Were yeah. they not also administering first aid? Okay, like, yes, I'm not be being fair. fair. I'm not being fair. <laughs> yeah. They were they assessing were, the crash. They were doing what they could. Pulling people out of the wreckage. But at the same time, they were running around, picking up every single piece of paper that was floating around. They were opening luggage to find any and everything of import that they then were carting away mm. to copy. Yeah. 
because uh, this is an, an intelligence bonanza at probably, this point. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that they find and they seize is the cockpit voice recorder. Mm. They seize it under the, the auspice of fear that it can be tampered with, which is the weirdest reasoning I've ever heard of. Well, I mean, it mm. technically is their jurisdiction. But they, the South Africans did a lot of weird stuff. Oh, I'm sure. During this, this But I'm just saying thing. that, like, I... Weird or not, we can say it's like super nefarious that they seize this thing, but it's their jurisdiction. It is, of course, they're going to take it. You're right. Well, it's also you know, besides which, I mean, did they seize it? Or did they just did they just secure it? And, oh no, they took it. it. Yeah, they, know, they took it. Well, I know they took it, but I mean, it seems like you should take it and put it somewhere, right? And not just Seizing leave it to there. me People is who, like the it, guy yeah. who took it wouldn't give it back. It, it, it did take a while to get it back. To yeah. Him. yeah, he had to yeah. do it under threat of legal action. Like yeah. it's it's really hokey what okay. happened here, but. Yeah. Um, if we move forward in time, I think it's around 6 a.m., but maybe a little before that, the South African Minister of Foreign Affairs, Pick Botha, arrives. And uh, they also, by the way, about this time or shortly thereafter, let a South African news crew on the site. And Pick Botha begins to talk to the camera crew, and he starts making really strange statements, which... In retrospect, everybody has said were diversionary tactics, but they were still really weird because he starts saying things like, well, obviously the flight crew was drunk on vodka because they were Russian, or obviously the plane was old and poorly kept, which didn't actually turn out to be true. I'm going to say something here. Yeah. Are you sure he wasn't just racist? I'm not going to respond to that because I can't, I don't know. Because uh, this, well, like, this 100% sounds like somebody being like, well, oh, they were Russians? Oh, well, they were drunk on vodka and, like, doing Mother Russia the favor. Like, well, that's what I, that I, sounds I, like I to know me. exactly where you're going. I've had the <laughs> same thought myself. It could have uh, It's not racist, though, necessarily, because the Ruskies are white. It's, it's racism. Okay. We're just going to leave that alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he also continued to make other weird statements. Uh, he said that, obviously, the meeting that uh, Samora Michelle had been at was uh, a, a was meant to set up a plot to overthrow the government of Malawi. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he also made statements about how Samora Michelle were both his and President Botha's dear friends. By the way, there might be a bit of confusion there. Pick Botha was the foreign, uh, foreign affairs minister. There was also the president at the time who was of no relation of South Africa, also had the last name of Botha. Maybe like Smith or Jones or something. Yeah, sort of. It was just a weird little thing there. But like I said, uh, you know, none of his claims were true, and nobody could ever ever pin down why he was doing it. Because he did it for like a year. At the same time, the bodies of everybody who died in the crash, they're collected, and autopsies would eventually be done on four members, or uh, actually a total of seven people, four of whom were members of the flight crew and then three others who were passengers on the plane. But there's for, and so there's that seven. And then there's also another group of six bodies that were not autopsied that when they were returned to uh, the, the Mozambican government had these weird seven meter, seven millimeter long cuts on their necks that were stitched closed and they were done post-mortem and it's believed that that was done to collect blood samples, but mm-hmm. it's the weirdest way to collect blood samples since 
I don't know, needles are a thing. There's but maybe this is a field method to do it. I don't know. Oh, were they right over like the carotid artery where that's at? I believe so, yes. Yeah. And they were post-mortem. Post-mortem. They were also uh, proven, according to the Mozambique Medical Commission, they weren't the cause of death for these people. So it's not as if somebody cut their throats yeah. open and stitched them closed well, to keep them quiet. I guess for me, the, like, the weird part is stitching them back closed. Is why for? Yeah, like why? Yeah. You know, like if, if they're dead bodies and you're not trying to hide something. Respect? I mean, this is the only thing I, I can come up with is maybe it's out of respect to the dead. Tidy but, I mean, you're already yeah. like... Keep them from leaking everywhere? I don't know. I, I, Super glue, man. Yeah. <laughs> you're laughing, but I mean, like, that's... I, I, know, that's like I a, know that's why it was invented. I know, I know. Um, okay, so we had already talked about here a little bit the fact that there was a town nearby. That was the town of Mabazzini. I, and I, think I think it's just Muzzini. Muzzini? The way I've heard it pronounced, the, the uh, B seems yeah, to be see, that's silent. A, that, yeah, okay. Yeah. This is not my language, so I'm going to run with that, is yeah. Buzzini. Um And those people did, the people of that village did go to the site, but they also make claims about how when the soldiers arrived, they chased them away. Well, they which gotta, I don't, I don't, you got to secure the scene, right? Yes, that's exactly my point. I don't, I don't find that bit weird. That's not suspicious, no. no. Okay. So, oh, by the way, um, we should probably go back to Mozambique for a second because they're still looking for their president. And it's not till uh, 10 to 7 in the morning that the South African government lets them know that they found the plane. And then they told them it was in a different spot. Okay, like 200 kilometers spot, away. The different spot thing, suspicious. The, you know, waiting realistically a couple hours. I mean, I don't know how fast word travels that, oh, especially, right? We're talking like analog days. The, sh the phone mm. still is a thing. The yeah, telephone. But I don't know. But I'm saying that like, okay, so a plane goes missing, right? So your air controller is going to call your government and you're going to mobilize your military. You're not going to call every single branch of the police in all of the country surrounding. So I, I will rebut that a little bit which is that their foreign ministers had gotten a hold of the South Africans to let okay. them know. Great. So the South African government knows this. But I guess... Pick Botha gets a call at okay. 4 or 5 in the morning saying, Hey, we found this plane and it crashed and we're pretty sure the president of Mozambique is on it. But we're assuming that um, the people who were contacted in the South African government were also like... South letting... Africans? Well, that they were letting Pickbotha know. Yes. Right? But, so at that point, they could have turned around and said, we think we found your plane, well, but it, we're unconfirmed. I'm just saying they, that like, they, they you're, you're, say anything. you're attributing, I just think it could be bad communication. It could be also that they just wanted to give, like, wait until people were up. Because at this point, plane's down, people are dead. Just let them sleep in for a few more hours. Maybe they were just being considerate. <laughs> so college dorm rules, okay. Yeah. I think that is less likely than like bad communication because, <laughs> okay. like, if they're—I mean, they're if if they've been communicating, hey, we lost our president. They're already awake. They, mm, everyone right. knows they're awake, but yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, I mean, <laughs> let's I, what, let what, that go for the time. I am just, okay, I okay, am just okay. assuming that they wanted a few extra hours just to you know gather up more intel. And, that, and that's I think probably that's, what it was. I think yeah, that's probably. what it is. They were busy photocopying and photographing everything mm -hmm. they could get their hands and on and making oh, yeah. weird cuts into bodies. Right. Well, that didn't happen until later. The uh, an investigation is launched into this crash. Uh, this is and based on the 
Chicago Convention, which was agreed to by the countries in that area uh, several years prior. The crash was investigated jointly by the countries of South Africa, because that's where the plane had crashed, by the country of Mozambique, because it was their plane, and by the Soviet Union, because they were the manufacturer of the plane. So we've got three organizations involved in this joint investigation, but it didn't last very long because both the Mozambican and the Soviet delegations pulled out because they felt like the South Africans just weren't involving them. They were, they were cutting them short on things. They weren't giving them all the information. So in the end, it ended up being a South African investigation. It was headed up by Judge Cecil Margo, uh, and is commonly referred to as the Margo Commission. And that name might sound a little familiar to anybody who's listened to this podcast, because if you remember the 1987 crash of South African Airlines Flight 295, we mm. covered that uh, a while back. Yeah. yeah. The Margo Commission also investigated that crash. Yeah. So there's a weird, another weird connection. And the longer we do this, the more connections between every story. Oh, my God, they're all connected. Uh-huh. It's the octopus. It's the, yeah. I was just going to say it's the octopus. Yeah. You're getting slow. Oh, man. You're not as young and quick as you once were, whippersnapper. All righty. Um, so... Well, moving so they on, they concluded that it was swamp gas, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they did not, because there was a swamp nearby. No, um, no. The Margot Commission actually concluded that it the whole thing was caused by crew error. Uh, they Quite were. Possible. They said that the crew was negligent in their duties, which is why they made both the turn and why they didn't follow the procedure when the ground proximity warnings went off. Uh, basically, they're saying there was no reason for them to turn. That was a bad move, and they should have stopped descending or pulled up when the warnings went off. Um, I think I would have. Well, this I would have too. This might be where Russian technology and quality comes, quality control comes into because comes into play because they might have thought, oh, it's just it's just not working right, you know? Because the, you know, oh, the the crew itself, not the, the, the ground proximity alarm. Well, the crew yeah. themselves thinking that, that about the the yeah, warning thinking that because they're thinking the faulty part. Yeah, I mean, if that thing is going off, the only reason you're not going to pull up, unless you're drunk on vodka, of course, the only reason you're not going to pull up is if you think it's just defective. Yeah. I guess uh, we'll all wait until theories. Yeah, because yeah. you know what the thing is, is that it's funny you say that because there is some stuff in the commission, but the, the Soviets themselves, they were not happy with the results of the Margo Commission. What? And they, yeah. they submitted a minority report of their own. And that is where they, um, they put out or put forward the idea that the plane was actually led off course intentionally by a decoy VOR, so that, that signal mm -hmm. we talked about before, somebody spoofed it and led them astray. That really didn't get a lot of traction at that time, but 15 years later, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was open. What a great name. Yeah, and I don't... So the TRC was set up after the apartheid government fell apart, and... From the way I understand it, what it did is it looked into situations where human rights violations were made with no care by the South African government, and they were they would help 
do what they could to either document it or possibly fix it, do what they could. Now, I don't know why they got involved in this case, short of the fact that they, that uh, Mandela's now wife was involved with it, or the fact that people had been saying for years that the South African government was responsible for the downing of this plane. You know, they, they actually gave a little bit of credence to the idea that there was a decoy VOR whereas the Margot Commission completely poo-pooed that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know. The, the other thing that they did do is uh, they couldn't confirm that there was a, a decoy. But the other thing that they did do is they really threw dirt at the South African government and kind of said maybe they knew something more than they had let on by the fact that it had been confirmed that the South African government had been tracking Michelle's plane prior to the turn. So they had known where it was for quite a while. Mm. And they didn't, they didn't, they never contacted him to say, A, hey guys, you know you're way off course. Or B, hey guys, you're in South African airspace. Or C, hey guys, you should stop going down. There's a mountain there. Well, mm. first of all, they didn't know what the flight was, the flight's objective was. They didn't, and and and, uh, and, and it's it, not their job. Well, and it crashed. Just they did. They didn't spend any time in South African airspace to speak of. I, I, I'm. And, I'm. In and it's not their job, you like you say. Yeah. I, I'm in total agreement with that. Yeah. The they should have called as soon as they hit South African airspace. Is just bad to me because it doesn't make any sense they were literally in south african airspace for i believe about 30 seconds yeah yeah at the speed they were traveling so uh, there's not a there's not a whole lot to that okay so now let's get into theories yeah and i've got our theories broken up into two sections what very simple real or not real no oh and don't say suicide because that's not a a theory either uh no the, the, the the sections are who done it and how. Okay. And the whodunit section is actually really, really easy uh, because there are so many players involved in the area at the time that anybody could have benefited from taking Michelle out. Mm-hmm. He had already survived several assassinate allegedly, I actually should say that, allegedly had survived several assassination attempts in, in the recent past. I... <clears throat> the South African government didn't like him because nope. a he was he was a socialist. Uh, there was also the the racial aspect of the apartheid government versus uh, Michelle. There's also Renamo. They would have had the uh, the the group that was opposed to the government since '76. They had a stake in the game because if if they took out the president, maybe yeah. they can take out the socialist government or you know move themselves into positions of power. Um, there's the president of Malawi who didn't like Michelle because Michelle had. The president of Malawi, what this guy had been doing is he'd been doing what a lot of people had. He'd been sheltering Renamo soldiers. Mm-hmm. And as retaliation, Michelle had said, if you keep doing that, I am going to put missiles all along the border of my country. And any of your planes that come into our airspace will be shot down, which effectively would shut down a lot of trade for them. 
Uh because things were flying in and out of the country. So that guy didn't like him. There's also, he had, uh, so one of the things that you will hear said is that he was going home that day so that the next meeting, he, uh, the next day he could have a meeting to restructure both the government and the military because it turns out socialist systems are notorious for corruption. What? And he was one of those few guys that in that kind of uh, regime didn't stand for that. He had evidently gone after people before who were accused of being corrupt. Interesting. Either that or he got rid of competitors by accusing them right. of corruption. There, that is a very good point, but I'm going to make him sound much more noble than that mm-hmm. okay. and continue to say that he fought corruption in his government. But the point is, those people may have said, uh, no, he is not taking me out of this cush, cush chair that I'm mm-hmm. in. I'm taking that plane out. Yeah, the thing about it is, is when you're president for life, you know, that's sooner or later, people you know, are just going to keep piling up enemies. He and, actually and wasn't president for life. That's well, the interesting thing, but he might as well have been. Effectively, he, he was. He was. He was He was in office for, what, 11 years? Mm-hmm. There was no there democracy. Were, it, was, it was socialist. So yeah. There were just, party elections, but yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, those, well, those are easy to rig. I'm not, I'm not foolish enough to think that they were... They were free elections, yeah. but I get where you're going. And the problem with who done it could have been anybody. I mean, it literally could have been anybody because there was things to be motives. benefited, but for or gained by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the Ruskies. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doubting them the least. Oh yeah, no, I I really think the Soviets, based on what they did, I would say they probably didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say that they did interfere to a certain extent by putting out the accusations that the South Africans, and we'll be talking about this. You know, that they duped them into crashing. Mm-hmm. They were definitely stirring the pot in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there <laughs> was purpose. a lot of stirring the pot. That yeah, we they, they were, yeah, that was deliberate on their part. I, yeah. I, I doubt they even believed it. But, you know. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the first theory of how. So uh, this is actually along the lines of what Joe was talking about, which is that the theory is is that indeed this was crew error and it... uh, Oh, actually, this isn't. This is a different one. I apologize uh, from what Joe was saying. This is that it was crew error and that they did, in fact, make a mistake with the VOR. Right, because they were just drunk on vodka. No, no, no. All that was proven wrong. No, no, that's wrong. That's not where we're at. Are you sure? I'm positive. I've heard that uh, the, their autopsies turned up a fair amount of alcohol in their systems, but of course, when your body decomposes... It was nothing you know. outside of the range of yeah. what you would find yeah. in a normal decomposing body. Exactly. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So the, the official line uh, or belief of the Margot Commission is that the, the crew had made the error of setting one of their two VOR receivers to the wrong frequency. Maputo uses uh, 112.7 megahertz. Matsafa Airport, which is 120 miles away in Swaziland, uses 112.3 megahertz. And by the way, you know, for two airports that are kind of close together, I, w- I would think they would space them further apart. Really yeah, I, I, I really, you know? I looked at that and went, guys, really? Come <laughs> on. Yeah. Uh, but the Margo Commission blamed the mistake on the design of the receiver in the airplane, saying that the numbers three and seven, the way they were displayed, looked similar. And 
And I'll be honest, I've never seen an image of their VOR receiver. Um, so I can't, I can't support that or, or deny it at all. But I also kind of think that that's maybe the commission having a bit of bias against the way the Russian plane was designed and mm. the Russians themselves, the Soviets. Maybe. I, uh, it, it certainly, it, they were headed in the right direction, but they were looking at that VOR, that airport. Yeah. Now, well, well, what they're saying, though, what the, what the Margot Commission is saying is that they were on the wrong frequency. So if you look at the map and the, the trajectory that they were on, mm-hmm. they were actually heading in a pretty, in a pretty straight course to Matsafa. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's understandable why they came to that conclusion. But if you were listening, you may have noticed that I said that one of their two receivers... This plane had two VOR receivers, Mm. and when the investigators looked at the second one, they found that it was set to the correct channel, which was Maputo's signal. Yeah, but wasn't one of them the uh, backup? Yeah, they they didn't use them both all the time. Yeah. And so it seems that what they had done is they had set the, they picked up their their trajectory based off the VOR, or their, their course, they adjusted, and from there, they turned on probably the autopilot, which just had a course heading, you know, and the autopilot took care of the next however long it was, which would have meant that, uh, you know, when they made that turn that put them on a heading of 221 degrees, if anybody had happened to look at the backup, they might have realized that they were completely off course. Yeah. And so that's where the Margot Commission is saying is that they, they failed their duties because they, they picked up the wrong signal and didn't look at the other one or check it again Makes later sense. on. Yeah, so they, they've got the, the autopilot going for a long time, on, and then when they come off that bearing and turn on the VOR, and they realize, oh, we must have been blown off by a crosswind, blown way off course. And so, understandably, they made that course adjustment. And then they turned the autopilot back on. Yeah. yeah, so it's, I don't know. I Yeah, I guess for me, I mean, the fact that they reached out a couple of times to say like, hey, are your lights on though? Like, they had questions, right? They, there was something in them they that was saying. They were not completely saying, negligent. Yeah, there was something that was in in them that was saying like, okay, but we should be seeing lights. Like, these are the things we should be seeing. Why are we not seeing those things? And to, you know, as I understand it, they were getting feedback from the tower that was like, no, the lights are on. Yeah, they like, were in, they were radio communication. Like, what what do you mean you don't see the lights? Like, if if you're where you're supposed to be, you should be seeing the lights. I think the tower responded to the light question after the second request. They okay. didn't do it right away. Right, but I mean, you, they're they're managing a ton of air traffic, right? You don't expect. But I think, you know, for me, that's the that's where that problem comes in is if they were being totally negligent. Maybe they're being a little lazy. If you've made sucks. this run a hundred times. Right. You're like, whatever, mm-hmm. this is the right thing. But if you've made the run a hundred times, you know what to look for. And if you're not seeing those things and you're even like mentioning that you're not it seeing those things. It should set up alarm bells and you should be doing right. something. And then when alarm bells that, hey, you're at a weird altitude go off, maybe you should be listening to those things. And so, by the way, they, they didn't, they don't have, do they have air traffic control in Mozambique or did they have it in those days? Yeah. Were, were there radars operating? Uh, oh, did, were they... Uh, Was anybody tracking their plane besides the South Africans? I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. I've never... That's a great question, and I've never actually seen anything that said anything about that. I will mention that there's a lot of uh, controversy over the records of the Maputo air traffic control, because... Mm-hmm. 
things like their tapes of the conversation are gone. Yeah. They they were quote unquote lost or that, disappeared. That they were just so recorded often. over, reused. Yeah, well and you know, and I don't I don't know if they were actually saving anything. I doubt that they had the capa- capability at the time to digitally save anything. No. So it's not as if, you know, today you always see this thing where you can play back the radar to see what the heck was popping up. I don't think they they had I don't know that, that technology was available. Yeah. yeah. But uh, as far as audio tapes, so, you know, you can definitely save those. Well, they tried. Apparently. Until they disappeared. Yeah. Oh, well. They went the way of the dodo. Yeah. Um, okay. Over. So I don't know about this one. I'm, yeah, I don't know. I have mixed feelings on the crew error. Yeah, um, especially theory. since, yeah, I mean, it sounds like they realized that something was wrong. They may not have reacted in time. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I know, yeah. I know. No, I think that no matter how you cut it, uh, even if even if there was some skullduggery on the part of certain parties, uh, the crew still screwed up. They they may, yeah, they may yeah. have been a little uh, lax in their reactions, mm-hmm. if, yeah. that, if what you're going at is there, yeah. So let's talk about skullduggery. Let's talk about the false decoy, or a false VOR or decoy VOR. Yeah. Because, like I said, the Soviets in their minority report they said that they had to have uh, been led astray and uh, led into South Africa. And in their uh, in their minority report, they get weirdly specific and say that obviously, and I'm using quotes here, obviously it was built using uh, technology that was provided by the Israeli intelligence agents, mm-hmm. which uh, intelligence agency, which uh, that's just that's an odd. The Mossad, always the Mossad. Yeah, yeah, it's something about the Mossad. It's it's a weird thing to to slide in there. Um, but well, yeah, okay. Well, but, yeah, I mean, at this at this time, you know, the, the Soviets were uh, were still they were trying to stir the pot everywhere. True, including and, and the Israelis at that time were allies of the South Africans, and uh, so they were they were always trying to stir up trouble. That's a good in point. the Arab world too. So that's, working Israel, and I can see why they would do that. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. So from from that point on, though, the uh, the claims of a decoy or a mobile VO, VOR began to come up and, and surface. And I did some digging into this with some online sources and then also by reaching out to some of our experts who I mentioned a little bit before. So I do want to reach, I do want to say thank you to Juan, Zach, Kim and Ronnie. Thanks, guys. All of those experts, you guys saw the emails yeah. back and forth. <laughs> Insane. And yeah. yeah, there was there was some high math in there that I had to work on for a few days, but it 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 made sense, and I couldn't have done it without these folks. Yeah. So thank you. This is, is why we have experts. That's the thing that I've been noticing a little bit about our experts, though, is they assume we know too much. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes they'll respond with like a really interesting answer, but you're like, but I need to Google like five of these. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So I don't you know what know. any of that means. I'm yeah. gonna have to take but a But thank you. Course. I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. But thank you to but everybody no, yeah, because what that did is it helped me understand better how a VOR worked, and even more so how you could spoof one. So that was really important that you don't find in a lot of the online stuff. Now, in 2003, there was a South African man named Hans Lowe who who came forward. He was near the end of his jail sentence, and he was in jail for crimes committed outside of the regime's instructions, which I have to take means he went a little trigger happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably. 
But he said that he was part of a South African team of special forces that were at the crash site the night of the crash. He was on a backup team. The primary team was running the decoy VOR. He was in a backup team that was there with RPGs with the express intent of if the plane doesn't crash on its own, it doesn't take the bait, shoot it down. I don't think an RPG is going to be really any good for taking a plane down. <laughs> Probably you SAMs. Mean a, yeah, maybe yeah, like, like, like surface air missiles. Yeah, surface Thank air you. missiles, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've played too many video games, and they all go boom. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. Yeah, I know. In a video game, I can take an airplane down with a 10 millimeter. It's the, oh, yeah. no big deal. Oh, yeah. right? Actually, we're going to talk about the little things that you can yeah. bring a plane down with, because it's actually yeah. kind of scary how easy yeah. it is. Oh, yeah. But no, you're right. Surface air missile. Yeah. yeah. So they are there with armaments that would take it down if if it didn't fall for the trick. I guess I, Yeah. I, yeah, I don't. I don't believe this guy's story, and I. I don't think I have to do too much uh, to really trot that out because there's a lot of hearsay about what he has to say, and there are one or two people who came out and said, "Oh yeah, no, we we know the guy who made it. He's telling the truth." But you know, Hunslow also said that he was involved in another operation using the same type of device that brought down another plane, and oh, he was also involved in my that was other plane was in 1989 mm-hmm. he was also involved in the monitoring of uh namibian activists by the name of anton lubowski who was later murdered and they don't know who killed him i do have to point out though is that you know the the locals the ones who said well they got chased away from the site they also said you know there was a lot of military activity that in this area the I... days before but yeah uh, the like it's a remote area of South Africa. South Africa was a pretty militarized nation at that. They point. They also had a supposedly they had a base that was there for a couple of years, so they yeah. could have been on exercises. Yeah, or they could have been like trying to reinforce their border. Very possible. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Michelle had just said, "I'm going to put missiles all along my border." Yeah, and that so they were have... probably like, "Oh, let's go check that out a yeah. little bit." And then there was uh, suspicious activity in terms of there was a really big tent. Erected on that site? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, like that's what big, the locals say. How big of a tent? Really big. Like, I, really, like, like really big. Like, like as big as an airplane? As big as a bread box? No. I don't know. Just big. Bigger than your average, you know, troop tent. You know, mm. a big tent. Really but we don't know tent. what it is yeah. from there. Was it, was it hiding, like, Thor's hammer? or? So we're going to yeah. move on okay. while you try to find Waldo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, uh, let's circle back a little bit to the VOR uh, and talk a little bit more about that. Like how it could have been spoofed? Yeah, this yeah. this is where this is headed. Because that, for me, is like way less... Complicated? Uh, or or out, uh, out unbelievable? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm willing to go there. So the thing to, you need to know about the VOR is they tend to be really big. They're big things. Like uh, one of our experts was saying that to make one mobile, or was it an expert or I read somewhere, they said that it would have had to been on the back of a three-ton truck, mm-hmm. which is basically a semi-truck. And that's, and that's separate from its uh, power supply, correct? Correct, because mm-hmm. they are also super power hungry. So you got to bring along another truck or two with, with the generator on it, right? And 
if the farther you want to throw its signal, the higher up in the air you need to run the antenna. Mm-hmm. So you could you could conceivably need an antenna that's 50, 100, 130 feet tall. I mean, we're talking about a big antenna. These things, though, they're big and bulky, so it's a little weird to think about that, you know, the, the way that somebody could carry one of those around. But one of the things that uh, the expert Zach pointed out for me is that when you have two VORs broadcasting on the same frequency, yeah. mm-hmm. unless one is massively stronger than the other, they might actually cancel each other out, well, yeah. which then defeats the purpose. It's also going to like, uh, you know, if, if they're on the same frequency, you would think that they'd be going like, well, VOR points this way and this way. And yeah, or, or it comes up and down, back and forth. And yeah, they I mean, it, yeah, they they put in a call to the airport to say, what's going on with this? Exactly. Yeah. But the workaround for that, rather than having this competing signal issue, would simply be to have an inside man at the Maputo airport mm. who could, during the time that you want, you knew that the, the president's plane was going to be coming by a certain area, flipped off the switch. Mm. So now you, you turn on the decoy. The decoy runs for a certain amount of time until you can confirm that the plane is turned. And then you flip on the real one again and you turn off the decoy. That also would solve the problem that I had with the decoy, which is if the decoy was running, it should have caught more planes. It should yeah, have drawn there in other planes. more planes than just this one. Well, yeah, there were other planes. The other thing about it is, is uh, this little conspiracy requires an amazing amount of coordination. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody was where, where did they, where did they leave from? It was. Uh, I think it was Imbala. Yeah, so somebody, so they had to have somebody at Imbala Airport to let them know when the plane took off and headed south. They would have known. They would have had a fair, approximate idea of what the airspeed uh, airspeed of it would be. So yeah. they'd know when it was approaching uh, its objective. That so, so far to, isn't all that complex. No, but they had to have a they had to have a guy at that airport to provide them with that information. They had to have a guy at the at Maputo Airport to flip off the switch. And then they had to have these guys running. I mean, this is this is a this is a well greased operation. It's amazing. It's kind of actually, Joe. Can I can I can I cut off part of that plan for you? Yeah, what's that? They made contact with air traffic control. Yeah. And then they made their turn. Yeah. That's... So the, it could be as simple as they made co- they they initiated the 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 handshake of hi we're here mm-hmm. and somebody says turn cool. it on turn it off mm-hmm. yeah. and they yeah, they, they flip the switches right then plane turns they they know the crew is probably not going to continue to monitor the VOR, and they turn it back off once they've confirmed that they've yeah. made their turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that simplifies the the number of people involved. I suppose you don't have to a start bit. at the beginning. Yeah. I, I suppose, yeah. But uh, And then I guess they could turn it off, and then they could like you know start their truck up and get the hell out of there. Yeah. Because you've got a plane heading right for you. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. You know what? The other way that this could very well have gone, though, again, this is a little more difficult when it comes to the, the decoy or the, the false VOR readings is if you remember, I talked about that the signals when they're pointing due north, they're both, they're in phase, perfectly in phase. And the farther they are out tells you where you are in that 360 degrees. It is entirely possible that instead of having a dummy VOR over the border, they instead manipulated the VOR on site to twist it essentially so rather than everything starting in phase at true north it started in phase at let's say 
37 degrees off of true is, north. And is that something that's possible to be done? I don't know. I, I imagine that it is, though I've never heard of it being done because it's, it's a very simple system, mm -hmm. but I don't know mm -hmm. how easy it is to turn it and then turn it back. And right. also there were, there were other planes hidden into that, heading into that same yeah. airport. Which is why I time. say turning it and then turning it back because they couldn't have left it in the odd position. I guess my, like, this might be a really dumb question, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, if we're talking, like, the flip of a light switch, right? You turn the one correct VOR off mm -hmm. and the the wrong one, the, uh, the decoy one on, are we talking, like, you lock into that and then ignore everything else? Or are we, because to me, like, we're saying this is a constant pinging that's happening back and forth between your aircraft and your station, if you're monitoring it. Okay, so what we're saying is like they pinged onto a new one, they made the turn, and then they turned the autopilot back on? Yeah. Okay. That's what the Margo Commission alleges is that they, they took their they took their new bearing and where they and crashed? turned the autopilot back on, which is then what led them to the, the mountains where and they crashed. And where they crashed, was that within 200 oh, miles? 35 or... miles away from Maputo. Okay. Is where they crashed. No, so realistically, ballpark thirty-five. 60, I thought it was like sixty miles. But it was within the two hundred mile. Oh, absolutely. Okay, they so were I definitely guess within the the bubble. And of then where the, it then the other question would be right: is that like obviously they're not going to let the autopilot land? No. no. So they're they going to hit a good. point where they're going to think, okay, all right, we should be getting close. They turn that off, and suddenly they've got two VOR pings coming at them. They've got their landing gear Again, if they're monitoring thing. the VOR. Well, but you would, right? If you're coming in for a landing, you don't think you would? You would. Uh, at the, Especially okay. if somebody was Wait. like, no, our lights are all so on. So they had, they had, when they hit uh, the 3,000-foot ceiling, mm -hmm. they had switched over to... Oh, what is the... It's visual flight proceeding. Okay. I, I can't remember. Basically... They were trying to do it by sight. You're doing it by... You're doing okay. it visually at that okay. point. So you, you turn on... You don't, you don't use the VR or stuff I guess like that because you don't need to anymore. I guess for me, one would think that a responsible pilot and navigator would think, okay, we'll give it like a minute, right? You're not going to be autopilot to visual. You're going to do autopilot to VOR for a minute to make sure everything's right. And then visual, which is what they did when they corrected. That's what they did. They turned the autopilot off and they said, mm, the way the VOR is not right, we're going to correct the course. And then the controller said, okay, when you're at 3,000 feet, let us know. Mm -hmm. So they turned the autopilot back on until they were at what they thought was 3,000 feet. They were at the proper one would distance assume, in the right altitude. Right. Yes. But so one would assume that they would do the same procedure where they would turn the autopilot off see the VOR. So be careful there, Devin, because you nor I are a pilot and you cannot imply that that is the way that the process works. I can't. I have, tripped, I have tripped us up before by Absolutely. making the very same assumptions. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I don't know that that's the case. I, yeah. I don't, I, what I don't really understand is like how they can fly all this distance and not at some point be saying, where the hell are the lights of Maputo? But that's just, again, they, 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 they thought that, that they, they? They, they said, they made statements saying basically they thought the power was out. Is yeah. this, we're, I mean, 
was Maputo suffering a lot of brownouts at the time? I mean, I know in Probably. certain times it, yeah, of political strife that happened. It wasn't it wasn't as if it had the strongest grid in the world. I would not be shocked that the place experienced power issues. Well, you okay. would think the airport would have a backup generator. You would You think, would also no. think that when the, the airport said, "No, our lights are on," the pilots would be like, "Oh, well, we can't see them, so... Mm. But I think that's the problem. Again, that's yeah. where the Margo Commission said, listen, when you got that response, you should have started pulling up right. instead Probably. of continuing to descend. And in fairness, they said that to dead men, so... Well, no, they... they I mean, they talked for 22 seconds. I mean, there was the, the right. request no, to check... No, I mean the, the Margo. To, oh, the Margo. Okay, got it. Yeah, you're right. Um, let's let's keep going on, though, okay. with this, this whole false beacon bit. Yeah. Because there are people who have said that it is possible that there wasn't a false beacon but instead that the uh the the manipulated vor was actually the vor in at the airport in matsafa yeah. which was as we said was only a little bit off yeah it was 0.7 but again 0.3. like we talked about before that should have drawn more planes in to that airport should have lured more in that direction that were headed to Maputo. Well, are you well, saying, are you saying that they set one, they, they changed the frequency at the airport to the one that was in Maputo? Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, at Matsafa. People have said that the Matsafa air, the, the VOR at Matsafa had been altered to appear mm. to be the oh. Maputo okay. VOR. I, I think Joe and I were on the same page in interpreting that in that, like, I thought that you know, like a pilot knee adjusted so that they were on the wrong frequency all of a sudden. Well, no, okay. So within that's, the that, correct air. But within... that's what, that's what the Margo commission has basically said. Mm-hmm. They said that the crew screwed up and, and had it on the wrong signal. Yeah. And, but other people have said, Gross. no, no, that's probably just something that happened in the accident. And this was actually the dummy was actually at this other station the, or other airport. And the, the thing that's really weird. And this is just one of those, hanky things that you find in these stories is that whoever it was that was running the uh the the air traffic control in Matsafa was also the same company or the same group that was running it in Maputo and they were said to have links to the mob so people have said well obviously that's how they pulled it off because it was a mob deal the mob but what mob are we talking about I'm that's sorry. a great question okay. Devin okay the other thing is that there's also the problem that we know the conversation that took place between the pilots and the air traffic control because we have the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. We don't, of course, have the tapes that took place at the end of the, at the air traffic controller. So it's entirely possible that they were not talking to Maputo Mm. air traffic control, but in fact, we're talking to somebody else masquerading as them, Mm. which Mm. is why the tapes were lost because they never actually existed. Hard to, kind of hard to like uh, do that though. It's not easy. And I, I, I say it because it's out there. I don't believe it because that is, again, that is one of those things, as, as you, Joe, are so fond of saying, that is 
too many links in the chain. Yeah, that is just of. way too complex. It is. Yeah. All right. I like well, my conspiracy simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a little Occam's razor thing. Yeah. yeah. So let's keep moving forward here. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go to our next theory, which is uh, uh, basically it's the theory that there was a signal jammer or a frequency scrambler involved. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't really get this one, but what happens is that this is that, remember that news crew I said, that South African news crew was on the site. Somebody that was involved, that was on the site uh, and the search team walks up with a small device that is described as being the size of a pound of butter, mm. which is a weird description of size, but okay. Oh, that's it. Do you not know what a pound of butter looks like? Yeah. But it's I just know. it's it's yeah. a strange description to me. Oh, okay. That's all. Uh, but they say that it could have been a frequency scrambler. Uh, it was figured out that it was indeed not one. Uh, who was this person anyway with this frequency Some, scrambler? It, Some random local? dude. Some random uh, searcher on the site who mm. was uh, officially probably a military guy. A South African military guy, but that's all I, I can guess. Uh, um, so he couldn't keep a secret very well then. Well, he sent it straight to the news camera, which makes you wonder if that was intentional. Mm. Because, you know, we've talked about stir in the pot. Uh, yeah, you could, I mean, Pick Botha was out there throwing everything he could at this story just to see what would stick. Yeah. So mm. he might have said, hey, I've said too many things. I've already talked to them twice. Why don't you go show them this thing and say it's this? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm making that up. But mm. the point is, is that it obviously wasn't that, but the scrambler would, a, a scrambler would have been effective in disrupting their distance measuring equipment and probably their communications. The issue is, is that we know that their communications were working because again, we have the cockpit voice right. recorder. Mm. Um, you would think that it would have interfered with a VOR to the point that the VOR signal would have been bad or it would have, it wouldn't have worked right. Yeah. That's, so that's the whole how this thing, how this thing would have worked doesn't make any sense, and it's actually kind of a toothless claim to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't put any stock into I, the. It was a I frequency agree. jammer. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't see how it could have worked either because if we don't know if this guy was saying that it was found in the wreckage, it was found in the wreckage, it was as found part on the of the site. plane. So somebody put a frequency scrambler on the plane. Theoretically, to screw yes. Up their navigational equipment, but in, okay. in fact, it was just a regular piece of equipment from mm-hmm. the plane. Probably. So we're going to move on to our final theory, which is that the plane was shot down. No. So one of the survivors actually said several times that he remembered feeling an impact or an explosion just before the plane went down. I personally like, took I per- a nosedive before the plane hit the ground. Because it doesn't. I'm sorry. Go just ahead. To, just to discount this. Didn't we say that the plane hit a hill? And then bounced off. And then bounced off. And I I feel that is probably what he is interpreting as a explosion. Because it would be very loud. Yeah. It would be very rough. It would throw you about. I can see how you would interpret that as an explosion. But doing our due diligence. Okay. Went ahead and I ran down this path a little bit. The wreckage was spread over 850 meters, which is about a half a mile. Mm -hmm. So there's wreckage everywhere. None of the wreckage showed 
any signs of having been hit by any kind of explosive device. So like a surface to air missile, like we were talking about, because you would expect to see heat and burn marks and things like that on the metal. Mm -hmm. And none of that was detected. You're going to find residue from explosives also. There's that as well. There's a lot of evidence of that. But there's also a bunch of stuff that I read out there on the internet talking about the fact that there have been planes that were brought down by things that were the size of a, a, a beer can that oh, was yeah. a small explosive that if put next to the skin of the plane yeah. and detonated while they're at altitude, like 35,000 feet up in the air, the pressure is enough to start tearing the fuselage apart and can cause a plane crash. But that also begs the question of if that's what happened, why the hell did they do it at two or 3,000 feet off the ground uh, when the plane was landing rather than when it was in the middle of nowhere and at its max altitude. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, what's, what are the odds? Let's, let's say they lured it in. It's about to crash anyway. Why bother shooting it down? Why, why, not, save, yeah. why not save yourself an expensive missile? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so well, there's, there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess my question, so we, we heard the pilot and, you know, everyone in the cockpit swearing a lot so i guess there could be some sort of like hey somebody sent like a firework or a mortar up to explode and they were like oh crap 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 or whatever mm-hmm. right and you know corrected and that's when they really crash that would make more sense to me it would explain why one of the survivors would say an explosion happened because something they saw kind of exploded it helped to i don't know disorient the people who were trying to steer the plane and help bring it down even more. I don't know. I mean, like, that's something that I could see, but I definitely don't see some sort of missile. Not really. What, yeah. what you described is such an, such an extra step that it doesn't make any sense if the plane is already descending. Unless it was a... Are you saying that's a diversionary tactic? Yeah, sort of to like... to distract the, them. You know, so like their sure alarms keep... are going off and they're like, you're close to the ground. And then a mortar goes off and they're like, oh, crap. Or... But you Something would think worse. that there would have been word about an explosion. I don't know if all the they're air. doing is like swearing. Well, like... They, they they weren't just swearing. They were swearing because of the 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 ground proximity mm-hmm. warning going off. They're talking to each other. They're okay. trying to talk to, to yeah. air traffic control. So at that point, I would expect that if they would suddenly say, there was a, a, a flare goes off next mm-hmm. to a plane or an explosion, they would say. A flare or mm-hmm. an explosion, yeah. you know. So, or they would, unless it happened or they so say, fast. They would say, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't say that. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yes, that, that is something Fair. to lead us to believe that something else happened right. outside of the aircraft itself. Well, it could have been that, you know, right before they, they grazed that hilltop, maybe one of their one of their wheels hit the top of a tree, yeah. you know, and made a big thump. You I know, mean, because it, it is the belly of the plane and the trees that hits first, and then, like yeah. I said, it bounced. Yeah. yeah. Bounced up and then yeah. came right back down. Yeah, I mean, overall, I just, I don't know what to think about this. It's so... Right. I'm pretty sure. I, I think the the Margo Commission got it right. I think they just set their VOR incorrectly yeah. and, and uh, got drawn off course by that. I, they, yeah, maybe I, they just got so comfortable, right? This is a 
we said that this is a, a flight path that they had taken over and over and over again. Maybe they were just so comfortable with it that they were just yeah, like, Yeah, I think this nah, crew had done 1,100 hours in this plane, something mm-hmm. like that. This crew, yeah. specifically, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. So, yeah, maybe they were just so used to their route. They were just relying on their instruments because they were literally phoning it in. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if they, like, like when they went, for example, to set their VOR, I don't know if they did it straight from memory or if they had a, if they had a, a, a booklet, like a... a a pamphlet that had all the all the frequencies for all the airports in the region. I guess I would assume if it was the capital of the country of for which he were. I mean, the president. This is their Air Force One, mm-hmm. right? So you if, would know it. You would, you would know it by heart. It. You yeah, would know you would that think. one by heart. Yeah, you yeah, would and and I don't think that they could just get it confused with another local airport because mm-hmm. they would have been making that you know going in all the time saying make sure to be on point seven and not point three because we don't want to go to Matsafa. We want to go to Maputo. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I guess in fairness, there we don't have any way of knowing if that display was working correctly. That's mm. possible. You know, there, there, part of There's what the so Marvel. I don't, did you read their report? By the way, either of you get a chance to go no, through that. I didn't. I didn't read the entire thing. I, read, I, no, I, I, read, I went to the conclusions and read yeah. the conclusions. Okay, because yeah. yeah. I went through parts of it, and they they do... Uh, the Margot Commission did sort of lay into the design of the display. Right. Not just for mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, it was the way the three and the seven were displayed, but also talking about the fact that there was very little backlighting and it was it was hard to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that could it could have been unfortunately and, an honest mistake. And I, I and I don't I gotta tell you, I didn't bother, I probably should have looked, but I don't know what uh, the number three and the number seven look like in Cyrillic. So it looked like... In Cyrillic or in Russian? I looked for Uh, it, and mm. everything that I found, they look like a normal three and a seven. Russian. Uh But I've also, in the commission's report, they talk about the fact that there's a line above both the three and the seven. Well, it's it's true, right? If three goes like this, Mm -hmm. and a seven goes like this... Right, and you're you're describing the horizontal bar mm-hmm. at the top of both numbers. But do you, numbers. you've had a digital clock before, right? Yes. So you've got the bar that's horizontal, and then the vertical stripe, right, mm-hmm. for the, the seven bar, or the horizontal three. bar and a vertical bar. And then for the you've seven. got, you know, for a three, you've got two additional horizontal right. bars, but. But if it's not backlit, I can see why it's yeah. an issue. It's what, it's very difficult. What kind of display was it? Was it uh, I, was it LEDs or no? Or LCDs? No, no, this is in the eighties. Yeah, I know. no. See, was that's it, the thing. Those, is that, remember those old digital clocks that had the flip cards? No, I don't believe it was that in okay. any way, shape, or form. I think that it was a uh, a kind a of a, a display, a dial situation that then the lights of the cockpit somehow illuminated. But that's a total guess on my part mm-hmm. because. It Again, I haven't been able to find a good picture of it, and I found a bunch of flight simulator images, yeah. but those are not reliable. They're not. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. yeah. For all I know, it's an analog, you know, dial. It could. And, and then you could be really off. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I don't think it's I actually think an so analog either, dial, though. But for okay. all I know. I think, yeah, I, I just don't know what I think about this. Yeah, this I, is, I, think, yeah. I think somebody probably put the wrong frequency in the, in the VOR. That's my, I think that's the most likely. Because, you know, I mean, the South Africans didn't really, uh, they had an incentive, but, you know, they, they, they caused a big, a, a big nasty bruising mess on their own territory. Yeah. You know, so if, if they had done that. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah Plus, I there's no evidence because, I mean, people it would have witnessed things other than, like, not large tents. They would have seen a couple of large trucks. And that's exactly right. Is and, that if there had plus, you know what the thing is is pretty. It's a pretty specialized piece of equipment mm-hmm. to build 
and move into place and then disassemble and theoretically then never use again? Or if Hans Lowe is telling the truth, use one other time and then let's just scrap it and melt it down so nobody notices? No, they would have operated with impunity with that thing. Let's just take down all of our enemies. Let's just, yeah, let's drop, yeah. fucking dropping planes left and yeah. right. Yeah. I guess part of me was think, envisioning some sort of smaller device that has smaller range that could be on the back of a truck. But then I was realizing that, like, oh, yeah, planes are going, like, a couple hundred miles an hour. So You actually, can't have a truck that's keeping up with that. The, you, you are not possibly too far off track on that because if you look at about where they took their 37-degree turn, if you were to go directly west from there... It's only about 15 miles to the South African border at that point. Because, you know, of course, borders aren't square or straight or anything like that. And so it is possible that they could have set up a much smaller decoy that had a much smaller range other instead of saying that the decoy had to have been in the mountains where the plane crashed. So mm-hmm. it's, that that is technically possible that they could have been that close and spoofed it, and that's why it didn't draw in more planes. But there's also, again, this is that anecdotal stuff. I don't know that this is true, and we should probably move forward here quite quickly, but other pilots have said, oh, yeah, I noticed that Maputo's VOR came on way earlier than normal that mm. day, which is really weird, and yet they all seem to have tracked into the actual Maputo airport. Well, there are... There are... You know, days for when, when, for various reasons, radio conditions change. Yeah. And yeah, we've, we've talked about that. Yeah, skipping, yeah. things like Yeah, so yeah. there's a bajillion reasons. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. But that's the other reason I, I don't think that uh, there was any South African intervention here because, you know, they should have been already within easy... Because they were like 60 miles away from Maputo, roughly, when they made their, their turn, right? Yeah. So, and, and they should have... There was another plane that came right before or after them that was uh, picked up their VOR like 180 nautical miles out. Right. Yeah. If they had gotten within 60 miles, and then they suddenly said, oh, autopilot off, let's turn on the VOR, see what it says. Oh, it says it's over here. I think they missed, I think they set their VOR to the wrong frequency. You you I, might be right. You and the Margo Commission might be right. I mean, I again, so. I'm, we've said yeah. this a couple of times. I, I'm, I'm completely unsure at this point. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise they would have picked up the Maputo VOR. All right. Well, I guess uh, that means that we should get into, as Devin calls it, bidness. Bidness. Mm-hmm. The yeah. end in bidness. House cleaning or housekeeping, I'm ha- sorry. Yeah, saying. yeah, house cleaning is a much different process, That's which may be what happened to Samora Michelle. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and give you some details here. The first of which is our website. You can find this episode and all episodes, as well as some of the links for this particular story, some of the research that we did on our website. That website is thinkingsidewayspodcast.com. We are available on just about every audio source out there. So, of course, we are on iTunes. So if you use iTunes, do go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. If you are using a streaming service, uh, we're on just about every one of them. And if that allows you to do a review or a rating, please do. We prefer positive reviews, but we Mm -hmm. will take uh, not-so-positive ones. But, of course, if you got concerns get all of us directly because we can't communicate with you through a review mm-hmm. we are on all of the social media all of it absolutely every bit of it well we're not on myspace well that's okay joe we don't make music yeah 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we That's are on MySpace. I'm we, sorry. We, we are on, on a lot of social media. We're on Facebook. So we have the Facebook page and the Facebook group. Uh, so like the page, join the group. There's good conversations always going on in the group. We are on Twitter. We are thinking sideways without the G in the middle, uh, wherein Devin sends out weird comments and pictures because uh, that's most of what our Twitter is. Although there's some good witticisms in there. I'm Yeah, I'm the best at witticisms. Oh, yeah, you're cool. That's like my most marketable skill. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, we also have a subreddit, which is Thinking Sideways. So if you use Reddit or you want to use Reddit, that is a good forum to go to to discuss the stories that we've covered. There are multiple ways to support the show. Uh, you can go ahead and purchase merchandise on the right hand side bar of the website yep. that I gave you just a second ago. There's some cool was... merch out there. There are, there's both Zazzle and Redbubble. Yep. They have different merchandise on each. Some shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, mugs. There's all kinds of different stuff out there. Um, I'm still slacking and making new stuff, but there's a bunch of other stuff there. So if you want something like that, go check it out. We are on PayPal. So we have the PayPal set up. If you want to do a one-time contribution to the show to financially support us, that's awesome. We appreciate that. And you can do that through PayPal. If you want to contribute to the show on a continual basis, then that would be where you would take advantage of Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So it's patreon.com slash thinking sideways, where you can pledge whatever you are comfortable with per episode. So each time an episode comes out, a normal Thursday show, you would contribute that amount. So So that is completely up to you. All of these methods, by the way, they are completely optional. We appreciate for everybody, uh, everybody who has donated, but it's not a requirement. So, yeah, I mean, we only charge for the regular Thursday shows. shows, That's right. And we'll also say that we don't ever do any Patreon exclusive content. No. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do charge for exclusive content. We are not one of those. We think that it should be free for people if, people can't afford it or you know don't want to contribute that's fine but of course if you're stinking rich then hey yeah we definitely (laughs) appreciate any support you can give us i mean it's you know it's it's paying our bills and also getting us to cons and things like Mm -hmm. that in the future um and I guess, you know, again, it's probably worth mentioning every once in a while that, like, we don't reap any personal benefit <laughs> from it. We're no. not making money on this podcast. No, so, no, like, I, 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 no. Yeah, not we, like we're buying all nice watches no. and stuff like that. No, no, we can't quit our day jobs. Yeah. Not by a <laughs> well, which is ways. fine by us. <laughs> Absolutely. But this is for funsies. Just so you know, that's when you donate mm-hmm. on Patreon or PayPal or yes. even buy merch, the, the goal is to just support the show. Mm-hmm. And it helps. Absolutely. Um, now, there is one last method to get a hold of us and that is email oh yeah you can send us an email at thinking sideways podcast at gmail.com and you can send uh you know story suggestions accolades concerns things like that that's all welcome i do want to make a quick uh quick little communication with everybody which is i've noticed a couple of things which is think about what you're writing or reread what you're writing because sometimes i've realized people are sending us emails Everybody, we see this comment all the time. People say, it's like sitting around listening to old friends talk. And so you, you consider us friends, which is great. I really, really like to think that. 
but we don't sit around and talk to you all the time directly personally. So when you go to send us a joke or something where you expect your friends would know that you're rolling your eyes and giggling while you say it, we don't get that because all we get is your words. So reread your email, think about the context. The other thing is that we started getting a number of emails that I would say are less, we always solicit feedback constructive criticism. There's been a little more direction that has been coming in. And by that, I mean people sending us emails saying what we should or should not do or say or stories we should or should not cover. Everybody has a different perspective. We do this because we like it. And what you may not find as an interesting subject, other people really enjoy. Every time that we do a story that somebody doesn't like and they send us an email about it, we get five other emails from five other people who say we love it and we want more of that. So think about the fact that everybody has a different perspective and we were trying to cover all our bases and give it something for everybody and not just you personally because we make it for you and us and literally a million other people. Yeah. yeah. And if you want suggestions on podcasts that focus on specific things, we've got those. Yes. So that's fine. Yes. I'm happy there to are. pass those along. Absolutely. There are buttloads of podcasts out there. There really so are. There's so, and, definitely and I, something for everyone out And there. I don't want that to sound negative or that I'm picking on anybody. It's just, again, it's context. So that yeah. is all I've got. That is our uh, the last of our business for the day. Yeah. So okay. we will go ahead and wrap this up, and we will talk to you guys next week. Yeah, ta-ta. Bye, guys.